As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You don't need a lot of money to do more with it. Join Padma Lakshmi, Viola Davis, and Fidelity's Women Talk Money team during our free Women's History Month series as we get real about ways you can start planning and saving for the future you want so you can feel good about your money every step of the way. Save your seat today at fidelity.com slash WHM. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE, SIPC. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to another episode of Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. One of the great mysteries of human behavior is to what extent do emotions rule us? I mean, a lot of us like to think that the kinds of decisions that we make that would benefit from a careful weighing of pros and cons, well, these are rational decisions and they're, they're not swayed by emotional states. But there's a wealth of literature that suggests that that's not true. In fact, some people think that our emotions govern all of our behavior, but that also doesn't seem true. And when you sit down and think about it, what exactly is an emotion? Is it just the subjective feeling of feeling sad or angry? Is it the behavior, hitting someone or freezing or trying to run away? Is it the physiology, so the increase in heart rate or change in respiration rate? Or is it the thought? Of course, neuroscientists who study emotions have to figure out which aspect of emotion they're going to be focusing on. And since we can't really study subjective feelings or even your innermost thoughts, most of the work is limited to physiology and behavior. But what if that was really kind of misguided? What if we're missing out on some of the most important features of emotions? That's a question that Joseph Ledoux, who is a major giant in the neuroscience of emotion, poses in his latest book, The Deep History of Ourselves, the four billion year story of how we got conscious brains. Now, I remember learning about the amygdala as an undergraduate and realizing what a big role it plays in modulating memory, which was my area of study for my PhD, ultimately. And the amygdala now has become a relatively famous brain structure. There are lots of media representations of fMRI studies, for example, in which the amygdala seems to be activated by all kinds of different tasks. And so it's an area that's been ripe for misinterpretation. There's even a Law and Order episode from way back when, when one of the characters hilariously mispronounces it and calls it the amygdala. I don't know why that make, still makes me laugh so many years later. Now I think people actually wouldn't make that mistake because it actually is a relatively frequent word in the English language. In fact, if you type amygdala in Google Books Ngram Viewer, you'll see that the term was, was, was essentially not used until, oh, maybe like 1955. And then it kind of, you know, has this massive increase. And right around, say, 1998, it seems to rise exponentially in books. So it's not just in my head that this word is actually being used more frequently. 
I mean, Google says it is, right? But the idea that if you see amygdala activation, that means that you feel fear is really just patently untrue. And Joseph Ledoux has been one of the researchers that has been fighting this misconception for a long time. In fact, he's one of the people that has shown that the amygdala is part of many different emotional states. So if we're trying to figure out what role the amygdala plays in our behavior, how we might think about emotions and include the conscious part of them, and how these emotional states might influence, drive, or be independent of our behavior, the best person to talk to would, of course, be Joseph Ledoux. Joseph Ledoux, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you for having me. One of the things that I find most annoying is when I hear people talk about the reptilian brain, <laughs> as if like, you know, when we let our emotions lead us, we are somehow reverting back to a time when our ancestors were reptiles. Um, and I could tell from your book that you have the same probably annoyance. Uh, yes. I mean, there's, there's so many things wrong with, with that view. One is that, you know, people usually think the amygdala is part of the reptilian brain, but that's even if you're a reptilian brain advocate, that would be uh, the wrong way to think about it because the idea of a reptilian brain proposed by Paul McLean uh, you know, decades ago was that it uh, was really part of the basal ganglia and uh, the amygdala is actually part of a different part of the forebrain altogether. So it doesn't really uh, work out quite the way that many people talk about it. So I want to actually, uh, if we get to nothing else in this conversation, but correcting this, um, you know, misrepresentation, I, I think we will have accomplished a lot. <laughs> okay, well, we're off so, to a good start. <laughs> so let's start with um, where this idea came from, uh, because, you know, a lot of a lot of your book is really about understanding evolution and understanding how we've built these models. And, and you start out, I want to even start out with kind of the view of, of Darwin's that we're a branching tree rather than a ladder, which um, when it comes to the brain, people really think about the evolution of the brain in this ladder-like way. So t tell us a little bit about that. Well, we, uh, you know, we have a tendency to think of our stop along the uh, the tree of life is the, the end point rather than, uh, you know, just one stop that happens to, we happen to be aware of because we're living in it right now. Um, but obviously we are, um, you know, a cake that's not fully baked and uh, it's not clear that we'll continue to, to bake it uh, that much longer if we keep on the path that we're on now. But yeah, so things go back uh, quite a long way. And the idea that Darwin was objecting to and trying to get past was kind of the religious Judeo-Christian idea uh, that man was the the top of the living organisms, and above that you had angels and you know uh, uh, God. Um, so it was a hierarchy of uh, of sequences that led to our existence. But what Darwin introduced was the idea that instead. The, the instead of life being like a ladder that that we've climbed up, it's a branching tree, and we're just like, you know, some branch way out there. Uh, we're on a twig on a branch. And so when we think about the brain, I think a lot of us make the mistake of thinking that whenever evolution, you know, shaped our brains or natural selection shaped our brains, it made us better. So the sense that newer cortex is superior to older cortex. So yeah, yeah. What do you think about that? Well, the, I mean, I think the uh, you know the people who really know about evolution and they're careful about how they talk about it. You know, I, I have to say that when I started writing this book, I didn't know any of this stuff uh, in any detail, and so I had to learn it. So most of uh, the book, which is called the Deep History of Ourselves, 
the four billion year story of how we got conscious brains. Most of the book was written, or at least the first half or so was written more as a science journalist where I tried to have to learn about, had to learn about all the history of life um, and had to consult with a lot of biologists to, to help me kind of make sure I just didn't make bad assumptions about it all. I probably still did, but you know, I, I corrected as much of it as I could according to what they were telling me. But anyway, um, yeah, so um, where, where were we? <laughs> so, so yeah, so tell us about why neocortex versus uh, yeah, why like, is it not better, yeah. right? Um, yeah, so <laughs> the way we need to think about all this is that each species is different. No species is better than any other. It's just that they're different. Now, we care about our difference because they're ours and you know, we do have differences. Otherwise, we'd be the same as some other organism. So it's, uh, there's nothing, you know, difficult to understand about differences. Sometimes, though, we have trouble uh, putting our differences in perspective. We sometimes attribute too much to animals and sometimes attribute too little to them, I think. Yeah. And so when people talk about older cortex or, or paleocortex, which you still use in your book, um, even though, as you mentioned also in the book, that amongst cognitive neuroscientists, there's been a push to call it allocortex rather than, you know, uh, because And neo of this... is no longer neo, but iso. Yeah. I just yeah. thought it was too much to ask people to keep all those terms uh, straight. So I, I left some kind of not necessarily occurrent terms, but I thought it would help the narrative if uh, I didn't go too much out on a limb and try to change everything uh, in the process. So, so what are the differences? And, you know, why would one or the other be more or less involved in emotional processing or whatever word you yeah. want to use? <laughs> um, well, the, I mean, so-called neocortex has, uh, or isocortex, depending on what you want to call it, has six well-defined layers. Um, whereas other kinds of cortex, paleo or allo or um, however it's going to be called, is um, has fewer than six layers. So you know, if you got more later layers, that's that's uh, that's kind of better than having only three or four. So it allows you to do more, presumably. But still, I think it's um, you know it's wrong to think that it's that it's better. And in fact, you know, there's evidence that. Even reptiles have remnants of neocortex. I mean, the idea of neocortex was that it came in with the beginning of mammals. So this was something that birds and reptiles couldn't possibly have because they weren't mammals. Um, but as evolutionary techniques and neurobiological techniques improved in the 1970s, uh, this idea of that um, that uh, neocortex was a completely new thing was sort of put down by a serious evolutionary uh, neurobiologist. Um, but it continues. It, uh, it's, still in, it's still there in uh, the limbic system theory, which so many people talk about as a kind of a fact about the brain. But really, the limbic system is, was an idea in, the 19, in 1949, 1950 or so by Paul McLean about a kind of um, stacking of brain areas the way that Darwin would have objected to. That it's not, um, you don't have a reptilian brain that then on top of that was mounted a mammalian brain, and on top of that a new mammalian brain, and that we 
because we have the new mammalian brain, we have neocortex, other mammals only had uh, old cortex, and reptiles didn't have uh, anything. They, they had some kind of even more primitive old cortex, but they certainly didn't have neocortex. But reptiles and birds do have these remnants of neocortex, so it's really wrong to call it neo, and that's why the ISO is, uh, is the preferred designation now. Yeah, one of the things that makes it obvious that the limbic system is problematic is when I teach, try to teach it to my biological psychology students. And if they make the mistake of Googling it or, you know, looking it up, they get very confused because all of a sudden, you know, the the structures that I include in the limbic system are, are not consistent across multiple sources. Sometimes it includes the basal ganglia, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes, you know. So, so uh, but yet we know that circuitry uh, now, at least, uh, you know, is is an important thing to think about. You know, whereas, like in the, you know, in the in the 20th century, we really focused on regions, and so the amygdala was the center of fear, at least fear expression, and and so forth. And and now we think of the amygdala as part of a circuit, although that right. idea has been around for a long time. Well, so, let, let me just hmm, put in a little yeah. plug for the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> back there in the 20th century, when we were doing all this stuff uh, in the 1980s, um, yep. You know, we were we, we were trying to bust the circuits. Uh, so what happened was in the 1970s, this is when I got into neurobiology, I, I did my PhD studying split-brain patients uh, and turned to studies of rats because I got interested in emotion. And I thought that I'd be able to do some, you know, b better neurobiology uh, and, and, you know, detailed analysis in, in animals than I could in humans because... There was no functional imaging or anything back then. So I, I turned to rodent studies, and um, it, it was a really good time to do that because new techniques had just come along that allowed um, axonal track tracing. That meant you could put a chemical into one part of the brain. It would be transported to the parts of the brain that it's connected to, and you'd be able to trace pathways that way. So that that's really how we were able to implicate the amygdala uh, in you know these kinds of things we were studying, which is simple Pavlovian uh, aversive conditioning, because we would take a you know it, you need two things. One, you need a good behavior, and we had a, like a freezing response, which is very reliable, and we had blood changes in blood pressure and heart rate, which are also very reliable and easily uh, elicited by a conditioned stimulus that had been paired with a shock. So we had a, a, a very well-defined stimulus and we had very well-defined responses. So it's just a matter of connecting the dots in the brain about how the inputs got to the outputs. And that set of uh, using um, track tracing to take us from one part of the brain to the other and using brain lesions to tell us what parts of the brain to look between, uh, we're able to march through the brain from the sensory system all the way to the motor systems that control uh, like freezing behavior or blood pressure changes in response to a tone that had been paired with shock. But without those techniques coming along, we wouldn't have been able to trace the circuit like that. So, we, you know, there was some uh, circuit tracing in the good old night, uh, good old two, uh, 20th century. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember, yeah, I remember when I when I got my PhD, that was like, you know, to talk about circuits as opposed to single regions was like you were you were on the on the edge. And it's true. It's true. Because, um, you know, the 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 amygdala, the hippocampus, areas like that. My poor friend Howard Eichenbaum, who passed away a couple of years ago, and suddenly uh, out of blue, used to always talk about, um, you know, what he'd write papers about. What does the hippocampus do? 
And I would tease him. I'd say, Howard, the hippocampus does lots of things. You, what you want to know is what the circuits that are passing through the hippocampus does. And he'd laugh and say, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, that's the, the, there used to be this approach that, you know, let's figure out what a brain area does. So you make a lesion in the amygdala or you make a lesion in the hypothalamus and see what kinds of behaviors are changed. But then the, the more kind of systematic behavioral neuroscience approach was, okay, well, let's, let's not, you know, say what, what are all the behaviors this brain area does. Let's take one behavior and figure out what the circuit is that allows that behavior to, you know, be turned on and expressed. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, you mentioned functional neuroimaging. And in some ways, I think it's done a great disservice to the amygdala and our understanding of it. (laughs) Because, you know, because of the reverse inference. So people then say, oh, look, when, uh, you know, Democrats are watching Trump videos, their amygdala is lighting up, they must be afraid of him, right? Yeah, or anytime the anytime the amygdala is activated. Well, we didn't know we didn't expect the amygdala to be activated in our study. Maybe our study like, induced fear. Right, yeah, right. So, <laughs> so yeah, so let's 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 talk about that and and tell us sort of why that's so misguided. Well, you know, first of all, the amygdala does lots of things. It's you know, it's kind of uh, reifying it to even talk about it as if it's one thing. So that, that's the most important thing to start with. Um, and it's not just involved in you know negative states. It's not. Uh, um, it's involved in all kinds of positive states, just as like the nucleus accumbens, or like the reward center. Everybody thinks, well, that that's uh, that's involved in positive stuff, but that's also involved in aversive. So we shouldn't really, you know, it's it's difficult to. It's, I think it's wrong to talk about brain areas as if they do things. And um, you know, in the human brain, it's more difficult to get into the nitty gritty of the circuitry. But, um, I, you know, the techniques are coming along and you can build on the animal work that, that has identified these circuits and try to understand it in more detail. So, I, you know, my, I've been on this kind of uh, anti-fear rant in terms of the amygdala now for a long time because I just felt that it was wrong to talk about, um, to use a subjective state term like fear to talk about behavior, that, uh, that it's uh, implying too much and when we even look at the at things that don't require the experience of fear, we still see that the amygdala is involved. For example, if you present participants in a in an imaging study with um, subliminal pictures of snakes, um, the snake will go into their brain, activate the amygdala. Um, the person's hands will sweat and their heart will race. Um, but if you ask them what they saw, they'll say, well, I didn't see anything, and they won't report any fear. So fear is not required for a human amygdala to produce these kinds of responses. So we shouldn't be using similar kinds of responses to assume that a rat is experiencing fear when it's exposed to a danger. Bayer knows that behind every breakthrough are people who dared to move the world forward. It's human ingenuity that drives progress. Time and again, we keep doing the things that couldn't be done. The sky was the limit until we walked on the moon. It once took weeks to communicate before it took a fraction of a second. So what's next? Bayer is working with farmers to shape the future of agriculture. Farms where all life grows together. Tools that help plants and farmers use less water. And crops that can help raise communities out of poverty. What we can achieve is simply an extension of what we can imagine. We've been proving that for thousands of years. That's why Bayer is driven to find even better answers to today's best solutions. 
When we're brave enough to challenge what hasn't been done, we discover the science behind what's yet to come. That's science for a better life. And so that gets us to another really interesting, I thought it was nuanced until I read your book and realized how, just how, how misguided so many of the other ways in which we think about emotions are, which is this sense of what comes first and how does it all relate, uh, the actual physiological response, so the change in heart rate, you know, uh, sweaty palms, etc., uh, the cognition, so the subjective experience of, oh, I, I'm, or, or the knowledge that, oh, I see a snake, therefore I'm afraid. And then, yeah, and then the, the subjective feeling of feeling afraid. So can you give us a sense of how you think about emotions and how this kind of, you know, a lot of the views out there are just not true? Well, I can't say they're not true. There's, there's just a different view. But um, my my personal view, which I've uh, you know, I, I acquired one afternoon in Vermont in 1977 or something when we were studying split brain patients. Um, and we would have these patients, uh, we'd present stimuli to the right hemisphere and make the right hemisphere perform some behavior. And then we'd ask the left hemisphere, why'd you do that? And the left hemisphere would generate a narrative to explain it. And so, you know, Mike Kazanaga and I were at the bar talking about it that night after doing the studies. And you know, we were just, I was just a, a probably very naive young graduate student at the time. And, um, you know, but Mike was leading the, the discussion. We kind of like ended up on this idea that our brains generate these, uh, these narratives to explain behaviors that are produced unconsciously. You know, at the time, uh, cognitive dissonance was relatively not new, but it, you know, it was a big topic in social psychology and Mike was good friends with Leon Festinger. So it was kind of on his mind and therefore on my mind that, that this was an important thing in terms of how we explain these uh, responses by a split brain patient. So the patient, you know, would stand up, you say, why'd you do that? The patient would say, oh, I needed to stretch. Or if you, if he scratched his hand, you'd say, why'd you do that? Oh, yeah, I, I had an itch. Or if he would laugh, he'd say, well, I, you know, I'm, uh, you guys are funny. So it, the idea is that, you know, maybe emotions were one of the system, motion systems were kind of systems that were generating these non-conscious behaviors and that would require some kind of uh, narration to make it all make sense. So the idea is that our conscious mind finds it disturbing to, uh, you know, we, free will is one of our most cherished uh, beliefs as a species. And so our conscious mind finds it uh, disturbing if it's not in charge of the behaviors it's producing, especially if it's producing significant behaviors. So when we do, you know, when we run from the bear, we think we're, it's our fear that's making us run. But the fear and the, the, uh, the running are kind of happening in parallel. And my view of how that happens is that it's a kind of a narration about uh, things that are biologically or psychologically significant to you. And that's what an emotion is, uh, uh, an interpretation of why you're doing what you're doing in a situation in which you're um, uh, challenged in, in some way. And, you know, I guess we should just back up a tiny bit and tell people who don't know that split brain patients are, are patients who had epilepsy and they had their corpus callosum, the major fiber tract that connects the left and right hemisphere, severed to stop the spread of seizures. And so then you can kind of query one hemisphere at a time. And that's what we call them split brain. 
So exactly, it's really fascinating to me to find out that that's where kind of these ideas began, um, because in some ways we still, it's still mysterious, um, you know, how in the intact brain where the corpus callosum, you know, is intact, how this kind of relationship between the interpreter, you know, interpreting our behavior and the subjective feeling, how it all comes together. So can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the difference or the importance or or when we talk about sort of the, uh, is it okay to talk about unconscious emotions or, or emotions by definition have this conscious aspect? Well, I, you know, I've kind of made a, a strategic decision that um, it's really confusing to people. It, you know, for years I, in, you know, I was also doing learning and memory work at the same time as the emotion stuff. And I kind of made a, a another strategic decision, which was, well, I'm going to, I'm not going to get funded to study emotion um, because my first grant, I was told, you know, you can't study emotion in neuroscience. This was 1986. So I changed the grant from the neural basis of uh, neural pathways of uh, emotion to neural pathways of emotional conditioning and put in um, Pavlovian conditioning control procedures like a random control group that gets the tone and the shock in a random fashion, I got funded. So I, I learned my lesson from that and became a kind of learning and memory person, but always remained interested in, in the, the emotional topics. So the... Um, um, where did I go on that tangent? So yeah, so I was talking about like, <laughs> can you have, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. can you have unconscious yeah, right. emotions? So... Um, but the the other strategic decision is I think that you know in the learning and memory thing we had implicit and explicit memory so I thought maybe that's a good this is like 1988 or something I thought well this is a good idea to talk about um, emotion this way too we have implicit or unconscious emotion in the amygdala and conscious emotion is more the cortical processes that that allow you to know that it's happening to you well. The implicit, explicit thing just simply didn't work. It was uh, when people talk about fear, they simply want to talk about, you know, they, they kind of gravitate towards the idea that they're afraid. And so uh, at some point I just gave up and I said, you know, I think scientifically we need to make a strategic decision that we shouldn't be talking about, we shouldn't be using subjective state terms to talk about things that don't generate subjective states. So underneath the uh, the experience of fear are these activities, for example, the amygdala contributes to fear but doesn't make the fear itself. So it's generating body responses that are generating you know feedback to the brain, kind of like the Damasio um, you know, somatic marker hypothesis. But I, unlike uh, Antonio Damasio, I, I don't think that that's the whole story. I think that's just part of the story that the, the uh, body responses contribute uh, especially to defining the intensity and prolonging the response. So all the hormones and stuff generated in the body are intensifying and prolonging the state, locking you into it in a sense. But the conscious awareness that you're in that state, in other words, the state of fear itself, is your interpretation that all that stuff is happening to you, the narration that, that it's happening to you. And, you know, in the in recent years, I've gone into the idea that you know, that uh, non-conscious emotion is thus an oxymoron that uh, if you don't feel it, you don't, it's not a feeling. And so we have to talk about these things in in terms of that, that are clear. And so a lot of this is just about being clear. 
that we have too many uh, confusing things in in psychology and neuroscience because you know we do we, we're very precise in collecting data and you know doing the proper stats and getting getting the right results and you know we work really hard to get those results but then we started interpreting it and we kind of go crazy and lose all of the precision in the interpretation i'm not saying people shouldn't interpret but you need to you know just sort of establish some ground rules about how you interpret things what do words mean the semantics of all our words are so loaded that we have to be very careful how we choose them yeah. And, I, you know, one of the things that I did after I graduated from my PhD is I went back and got a music degree. Um, so uh, uh, and when I was there, I realized like how little of the neuroscience of learning and memory had trickled down into musical training um, or even things like dealing with performance anxiety. Like a lot of my musician friends spent their entire performances trying not, to, you know, trying to tamp down their sympathetic nervous system fight or flight response when, you know, it, from my reading of the literature, I was like, well, if you just let it go, you're going to go into the parasympathetic rebound, and it's going to be a great place to perform from. So like, why? You know what I mean? So anyway, so so I'm this is a big preamble, because you're also a musician. uh, For our listeners, he's a singer songwriter in a band called the Amygdaloids. And, uh, and so, you know, you deal with performance anxiety, I'm sure. Um, And you've probably considered or maybe you haven't, uh, this may be getting too personal, but okay, let's just put it in the perspective of my musician students. Um, So some of them take beta blockers to deal with their performance anxiety, right? So I wanted to ask you, you are like the world's like the perfect expert to talk about this of like, you know, what would a beta blocker, which actually, you know, in my understanding, dampens the sympathetic nervous system response, but leaves the interpretation intact, right? It does not affect cognition. How can that be helpful or hurtful in performance? Well, you know, so there are two kinds of beta blockers, some that cross the blood brain barrier and go into the brain and others that just work peripherally. And I think in general, people trying to use it for performance anxiety, uh, uh, take the more peripheral one uh, so that they're not affecting the brain as much. But, you know, the the data on using beta blockers for anti-anxiety control, I think, you know, it's like a lot of things in science. They start out with, you know, looking great, but the more data that's collected, the, the less good it looks. So, you know, I'm not an expert on uh, on what the detailed status of all that is now, but I was recently uh, somewhere and asking some psychologists, psych- psychotherapists about this, and they confirmed the, the opinion that other psychotherapists had told me that, that beta blockers are not really the panacea that people had hoped for. But the basic idea is that, you know, you would turn off the, uh, you would prevent the sympathetic nervous system from driving all the the body responses, and therefore you would feel um, calmer uh, when on stage. So, but you know, like everything, there's a strong placebo effect. So if you expect it to work, maybe that's enough to to help you. Yeah. So I think that for a lot of these, yeah, that, that's kind of you can you can develop an aversive reaction to having a panic attack on stage, right? And if you so if you can either prevent that or give yourself some sense of control over it, um, then maybe you actually don't experience the full-blown anxiety. So, uh, you know, from from your, uh, you know, understanding or your model of how emotions work, what would you say is the, like, let's take the case study of a, of a musician who's on stage and is starting to feel nervous. Like, what do you think would be the trajectory of the emotions and, you know, like, you know, kind of what advice would you give them? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, once you start to feel your heart beating a little faster 
And that will, you know, trigger thoughts that begin to, you start to worry about it. In other words, now you're becoming anxious. And that just becomes like a feed forward cycle uh, that's hard to break out of. Um, And, you know, that's why, you know, in principle, beta blockers should really be useful because it would like, it would kind of nip it in the bud in terms of you're not dealing with all that arousal. Um, So I think what, you know, in general, what uh, emotional body arousal does in a situation like that is it doesn't define the, the, the emotional experience itself. What it does is amplify it. Um, And it's kind of like, and, and this is why many medications that um, are designed through, for example, animal studies, Um, By studying behavior, uh, put animals in challenging situations, you know, like where they get shocks or or out in open spaces where they might be subjected to predation. Um, We really, all you're doing there is is studying their behavioral responses. You don't know what's in their head, but the drug companies have assumed that when an animal is um, less timid in a behavioral situation, it must be less fearful. And therefore, when you give this medication that makes the animal less timid uh, to a person, the person will then be less fearful or anxious. But the companies are getting out of the business because the medications don't make people less fearful or anxious in general. So, um, But instead, what they, they do to some extent is they might make the person, let's say you have someone with social anxiety, it's a little easier for the person to go to the party because they're less behaviorally timid, just like in the animal studies. But once the person is there, they still feel anxious while at the party. But if the person is told, well, this is not you know, a cure for your fear or anxiety, it's instead a tool that can help you by you know, making you behaviorally less avoidant of, of situations. You know, it's a little easier for you to kind of climb that, uh, the mountain that it takes to get to the party. Uh, it, you're less resistant physiologically and, and physically as you go there. You're less hyper aroused, and so that that could uh, make you um, a little calmer while you're there. Um, but when you're there, you're probably still going to be anxious. But because you're you're on this medication, maybe it will allow you to um, you know tolerate the, the situation a little more, a little better, and then you can begin to chat with people to the extent you can. And when it's too much, you step outside or you know, go to the bathroom, take a break, just get away from it and then go back in. Just kind of do a little bit of self-exposure therapy because the medication might uh, make it more tolerable for you to do that. So, you know, if the, if the patient had been told that instead of this is a cure for your anxiety, the uh, everybody would be happier about it. But I think because of the misinterpretation of what the medications are doing, uh, everyone is disappointed. So I just want to remind our listeners, as you mentioned at the top of the show, um, that Joseph's book, The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains, is available at booksellers everywhere. And I will say that the emotion part is just one part of it. Uh, There's so much information about evolution of of cognition, about evolution in general, and it's... uh, it's really a, a, just a treasure trove of information. And it's written in a way where you don't, you know, you, you you can read little kind of snippets of it and still get a lot out of it without having to, you know, commit to the full book from start to finish. And so then you can, I, what I like about it is you can c- kind of go back and forth. And so I found, continue to find nuggets of, uh, of, of ideas that have been fascinating. 
But I, I have one last question, which is, you know, we are we are entering a era where there's another election coming. Um, a lot of people feel that sometimes fear drives voting decisions. Um, so can you talk a little bit about whether there's any evidence or whether, you know, like what what the kind of using fear to drive voting decisions, is that because we're not quite aware of, we're not very good at interpreting uh, our emotions or, you know, like how does that fit in with your um, understanding of how emotions work? Well, you know, I think this is such an old, old ploy. I mean, this was happening in ancient Greece and Rome and you know, politicians have always, people have always used power to control people. And what better way to have power over someone than to scare the bejesus out of them? Um, and so, you know, I think the, you know, towards the, the end of the book and the epilogue, I, I bring up the idea that our, our self-conscious brains are responsible for our greatest achievements, art, history, and heart, art, uh, you know, I don't know, literature, music, uh, architecture, all the, the things we've done that we can be kind of proud of as, as a species, but also for our worst tendencies. Um, our self-conscious minds allow us to be, um, you know, narcissistic and greedy and envious and angry and hateful and spiteful. Um, and so we have all these tendencies that are always at play in us. And we see politicians playing on those because they know that it can be effective. It, you know, it's not about facts. It's never been about facts. Uh, we just had a kind of rule of uh, personal exchange that in a personal society that, you know, in culture that we should play by, by these rules that we shouldn't lie to people. We shouldn't, uh, or lie too much to them and we shouldn't cheat them too much. We should just kind of, you know, play within a kind of domain, but you know, the, uh, the all, all bets are off now and anything goes. So I think we're in a situation where we, uh, are, faced with a, a huge political, social, cultural, in fact, world crisis. Uh, and we, we, as a species, are just barreling towards our own destruction. You know, the uh, uh, thing that we know, that I, you know, I kind of learned a bit about in writing this book about the evolution of life is that large energy demanding organisms don't do well when the climate changes. Um, this is what happened to the dinosaurs. There was a drastic change in their uh, in the conditions under which they lived and that wouldn't support the kind of uh, large energy demands that that they required but small organisms like very tiny little mammals uh, rose to the top of the food chain because they could live on much less and I think we you know it's a lesson for us that the large energy demands that we place on the environment now, or changing the world, the environment that we live in and every other organism lives in. And so every time we lose a species, it affects our whole balance of uh, the environment in, in ways that are going to affect us. So it behooves us to take care of the entire uh, planet. You know, the, the Earth will, as Sky Adam Frank, who wrote a, is a geophysicist, who wrote, or an astrophysicist, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. He said, the Earth will be fine. Let's not you know, worry about saving the Earth. What we have to do is save the Earth in a way that will allow us to continue. Otherwise, we won't be around. 
Yeah, we're just paving the way for the age of the cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think you know. I think it's all about bacteria because uh, okay, right, know, that, right. that's where I start the book. That the bacteria are where we started, and probably they will never go away. They've they've survived four billion years. Well, Joseph Ledoux, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you. It's been fun. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.